Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet. By God's providence, of course. I'm Nick Quint. And I'm Thomas Horrocks. And today will be the first of two episodes in which we'll be talking about the concept of faith in Christianity. But first, we've got to talk about our beverages of choice. As Psalm 104 verse 15 states, God has made the wine that gladdens human hearts. I think that applies equally well to beer, as long, of course, as we enjoy it in moderation. So what are you drinking, Nick? Well, today I picked up something from Epic Brewing out in Colorado, so shout out to my friend Jeff Cook, who's a philosopher out there, who recommended them to me. I'm drinking Son of a Baptist, coffee stout with cocoa nibs, made with (laughs) local coffee. It is the most hipster coffee you could probably ever drink, and it's about as good. It's really good. It's an 8% imperial stout, and the coffee, once you warm it up, comes right out, so it's got that really nice kind of tangy bitterness without any of the kind of copperiness that you get from certain brands of coffee. So this is this is delightful. I'm going to sip while I listen to what Thomas is drinking. You're not drinking uh, tea again, are you? No, no. I planned ahead this time. I'm actually drinking Bad Elmer's Porter from a local brewery here in Bloomington, Indiana called Upland Brewery. Uh, the, the picture on the front of the beer is a guy wearing a bowl, uh, looks like a bowler hat, and uh, has a really big beard. So I might be competing with you for the most hipster beer, but it's a, it's a really decent porter, and it's local. Nice. Well, it sounds good. All right, so cheers to you, my friend. And cheers. In our first episode, we asked, what is a Christian? And we kind of came up with two basic fundamental ideas. One, uh, we said, is a disciple, a committed follower of Jesus, you know, as C.S. Lewis stated it. To become a little Christ, essentially. And it's second, more than just believing the right things or having the right doctrine, although those are, of course, important. But Thomas, we mentioned we were talking about faith today. Guide us into that. What exactly, specifically, are we talking about? Yeah, so just like last week, we took a broad look at what is a Christian. Uh, Today and in our next episode, we're going to be asking the question what is faith? What is faith? Uh, That's because faith is a central topic in Christianity uh, is the the Greek word that we're going to talk about later. Uh, The noun version occurs 243 times in the New Testament. The verb occurs 241 times. The adjective occurs 67 times in the New Testament. It's a major, major concept in the New Testament as well as in Christian theology. As a matter of fact, um, as you know, uh, the, the Latin term sola fide, which means justification by faith alone, was the hallmark of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, One of the great reformers, John Calvin, uh, who we have a love-hate relationship with, uh, stated that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is, quote, the main hinge on which religion turns, end quote. That's from his um, Institutes of uh, Christianity. Um, And so... Basically, if there's a concept that's that important to Christianity, we sort of think that we should understand what it actually means. Uh, You know, a lot of, it's one of those terms I think that maybe a lot of us take for granted or a lot of people just sort of assume they know what faith means because of how ubiquitous it is within Christianity. But I think it's also one of those terms that may be somewhat misunderstood. Uh, We may be thinking about this term in terms of uh, either 16th culture sorry, 16th century culture or 20th century culture, when really it needs to be understood within the context of the first century Jewish and Greco-Roman culture in which the New Testament was written. Right, and what something is really powerful as this word and just the, the weight this word carries in even just our modern English lexicon, 
we really need to clarify a few things just so we're all on the same page. And so this may be a little nerdy, but it's important. So when we talk about faith, the English word faith or pistis in the New Testament is always almost translated from that same word, pistis, the pist root, or one of the words from that family. And so that word is basically identical in meaning to the Latin word fides, you know, uh, as Morgan, page seven says. And this is important because we'll see later, faith may not even be the best translation of this word group, especially given the connotation that faith has acquired from the Reformation or in post-Reformation studies. So in light of that, you'll hear it's using this word pistis a lot throughout the episode. And so we also paid a lot of money to learn Greek in seminary, so we want to get as much out of this as we can. Uh, but before we go there, we want to see what faith or pistis is like like last episode let's see what pistis is not and so this partial list of what pistis is not is borrowed from matthew bates excellent book salvation by allegiance alone i think it's baker baker press and which we'll talk about a little bit more later exactly uh so one of the ways we can help understand what a certain term or concept is is by looking at what it's not uh, and so one of the things that pistis is not uh, in terms of how it's used in um, greco-roman and jewish culture in the first century it's not the opposite of evidence-based truth a lot of times we use the word faith today and we talk about having faith as opposed to evidence-based truth like you look at some sort of evidence and well faith is sort of believing the opposite of that but that's not really what it meant uh within the context of the New Testament in that culture. So we'll look at that a little bit later. But uh, that, what that means really is that it, when it comes to Christianity and pistis or faith, we don't have to be afraid of questions or science. I know sometimes, um, you know, in, in Christianity, we, we sort of look with look at science with a bit of a side eye and look at evidence-based claims with a bit of a side eye because you got to have faith. But but really, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a conflict that we don't need to have. That's not what pistis really meant. And it's in addition to that, uh, it's pistis is not the opposite of works. You know, we get this kind of dichotomy of faith over works or faith uh, contrary to works and other sorts of things. And works is also a front loaded theological term that maybe we'll get into another time. But pistis is not the opposite of that. And in fact, as we'll see in the ancient world and as the Bible clearly teaches, pistis and works or ergo or ergo go hand in hand. So hence, for example, in Ephesians 2 4 is kind of this magnificent text. I'll just read it from the ASV because that's the translation most of our Calvinist brothers and sisters uh, use. Uh, in verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. And of course the text goes on and on and on. And so there's multiple issues within this verse that's kind of the linchpin of the Protestant Reformation. And for good reason, it's a great text properly understood. And the question, of course, boils down to how do we understand grace here? Is this a, a reference to favor? Is this a reference to patron-client relationships and stuff like that? And so if you want a really good book on the word for grace, Carus, uh, John Barclay's book, Paul and the Gift, really teases this out throughout the Second Temple period and throughout Romans and Galatians specifically, but we can't really get into that. But if you want to know what grace means, Barclay's a good place to start. But in this verse, we see here that faith is something given to us, and that we reciprocate. And that is the nature, of course, of ancient gift-giving relationships. This charis, this grace or favor or gift, is itself a gift, of course. But there's no such things in the ancient world as a free gift. All gifts carry a form of patronage and reciprocity and moral obligation, or even cultural obligation. Because God has given us the gift of Christ, said explicitly in Ephesians 4, 7, that is, God gives us faith, we respond with faithfulness to God 
Hence, Synergist, the title of our podcast. And so that's basically, if we want to just kind of go down that rabbit hole, it's not the opposite of works. It is the gift of God given to us so that we may perform good works in a way that pleases God. But that's, that's of course, just as a little nugget. There's so much more we could say that we just don't have time for. But Thomas, carry us on. What is what is the rest of this? So, yeah, we're looking at what faith is not or what pistis is not from a biblical standpoint. And then we're going to look at what it is. Uh, and I probably... It's good to say here, um, this is this is the first of two episodes. I think we mentioned that. So uh, in this episode, you're not going to hear us talk too much about Scripture, or if we do, it's going to sort of be in passing. So um, if you have all of these questions about, well, what about this verse, or what about this verse, uh, wait for the next episode. We're going to deal a little bit more in-depth with the actual biblical text itself. Um, but when we're getting back to this list about what pistis is not, uh, it's not reducible to mental assent or the agreement with uh, propositional statements. Uh, in other words, and we, we talked about this a little bit in our last episode, uh, there, there's more to Christianity, and as we're going to see, there's more to pistis, or there's more to faith, than just having the right doctrinal statement, or just believing the right things about God. In other words, sometimes we think that, you know, faith is just, you know, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, and, and I have faith, but as we're going to see, th- that propositional statement is a part of pistis, but it's only a part, and there's there's much more to it. Um, and so, th- the reason we're doing this is because we believe, uh, and I think we've got some good evidence to back it up, that that one of the most important principles in biblical interpretation is this idea that biblical words and concepts need to be understood according to the definitions that they carried in their own time and their own culture. Right? We know that the meanings of words tend to change over time. What we mean by a certain word now isn't necessarily what was meant by it you know, 50 years ago, or may not even be what's meant by it in another English-speaking language, say, uh, across the, the pond. So uh, in order to really understand what the Bible is saying, we need to get ourselves back into the language and the culture of the time in which the Bible was written. Um, and so there's a great book out there uh, by Teresa Morgan. We mentioned it earlier. It's like this 500-plus page tome called Roman Faith and Christian Faith, Pistis in Fides in the Early Roman Empire and Early Churches. The title alone is a mouthful, and the book is super, super dense. Uh, so th- for those of you who are um, you know, heavy readers and you like the really thick academic books, uh, it's, a, it's a good read. Um, it's, uh, it, you sort of really got to plod along. It's, it's very dense, but it's very informative. And so I just want to go over a few of uh, the highlights from this book. She, she really dives into this concept of pistis and fides within the early Greco-Roman and Jewish culture from which... Uh, the Bible was written. Um, and so she, she goes through all of the, these different primary texts um, from different aspects of life in Greece and Rome and uh, from the Septuagint. And so she draws out this holistic picture of what these words meant back in that time. And here's some of her uh, highlights. Uh, first, she, she explains that um, pistis and fides back in that culture are not typically the words that are used for propositional belief. Uh, there were other Greek words and there were other Latin words that were used to uh, communicate those kinds of ideas, mental um, assent to certain ideas, mental agreement with certain ideas. The what we would use, what we would say in English, belief. There were other words that were used to communicate the idea of belief that is is only mental. Pistis and fides went 
beyond that. What she explains is that these words were, they were really mostly relational in nature. Um, in other words, they were used to describe like the relationships between a husband and a wife. Um, a husband would have pistis towards his wife. A wife would have pistis toward her husband. Um, within family members. It was words used to describe the relationship between a master and a slave, or between soldiers and their commanders. Soldiers would go to war and would uh, they would do incredible feats because they had pistis toward their commander. Um, patrons and clients, you would uh, do business, you would extend credit to a client because you had pistis uh, in this client. Um, so these pistis and fides are, are words that were, were really relational in nature to describe relationships, not just what people thought or what people believed. Uh, it's a word that really, it carries the meaning uh, in the ancient world of devotion or of loyalty or of a faithfulness that's based on trust. Now we know, of course, that um, trust is based on believing certain things about a person, but it's not limited to that. For instance, Nick, you and I are both married, um, and in our relationship, it, there's more to our relationship than just believing the right things about our spouse, right? I mean, we yeah. believe certain things about our spouse, but our be those beliefs lead us then to certain actions, to faithfulness, to fidelity, to trustworthiness, which is really what we're getting at in the ancient world with these words. Uh, even in the Septuagint, she, she goes into the Septuagint, uh, which, uh, for those of you who don't know, is the, uh, the Old Testament written in Greek. Um, so in the Septuagint, the pistis language, even though it's more uh, rare than it is in the New Testament, is highly relational in nature. And she sort of explains that pistis in, uh, in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, uh, really sort of means trust-based obedience. Pistis is trust-based obedience. And so her main point with all of this is that from a methodological standpoint, right, when we're trying to understand the New Testament, we should start by assuming that pistis carries the same connotation in the New Testament writings uh, that it does within the world at large, unless it's clearly stated otherwise. In other words, it, when we encounter this language in the New Testament, we shouldn't automatically assume that it means something radically different than it meant uh in that world does that does that sort of make sense nick yeah that makes sense and additionally uh it's we we often in the in the modern world we kind of impute certain words with specific contextual or even cultural meaning that the ancient world just look at us like this doesn't make any sense and so and it so this is gets to the the kind of the crux of the matter that you and i've been talking about for a while and as this as we mentioned before matthew bates book uh salvation by allegiance alone which, as the title suggests, he argues that pistis should be understood and even sometimes translated as allegiance. That is more than just fidelity. It is a, an entire lifestyle orientation, a, a proclamation, a lived proclamation. And so he draws on Jewish sources from before and after the time of the New Testament. And so in the book of Maccabees, for example, a book written before the time of Romans and probably before the time Jesus was born, but it's a major Jewish work talking about the Maccabean revolt against uh, the empires that were oppressing them and trying to kind of, in a nutshell, essentially trying to erase uh, ancient Jewish culture and replace it with uh, Gentile and Gentile idolatry and all these sorts of things. And so it's a very violent, very fascinating historical book that's in part of the Deuterocanonical or Apocryphal books. It's not a you won't find it in a major Jew uh, or major uh, English translation today, but you'll find it if you go looking for it perhaps in the NRSV because it has great historical value, even though a lot of Protestants kind of tend to sniff at it. But in Maccabees 10:25 through uh, 
chapter 10, verses 25 through 27, we read this. King Demetrius to the nation of the Jews, greetings. Since you have kept your agreement with us and have continued your friendship with us and have not sided with our enemies, we have heard it and rejoiced. Now continue still to keep faith, pistis, with us, and we will repay you with good for what you have done for us. And that's from the NRSV translation, as I've already mentioned. And what we see here is this kind of this entire lifestyle orientation that has a political connotation. But of course, in the interworld, politics and religion and human life or human day-to-day life were far more integrated than they are now. For us, get, you know, being involved in politics means getting on Twitter and sending out a snarky tweet at the president of the United States and again getting on with our lives. For them, it was an entirely different concept. The, what the, and all these sorts of things kind of work with that. And so a second text that kind of illustrates this is the work from Josephus. Josephus is a first century Jewish, essentially he's a traitor. He went to the Roman side once he realized that the Jewish people were going to lose this war. And so he writes a lot of his stuff from the safety of Rome. So there's a very interesting relationship uh, Jewish scholarship has with Josephus because the guy's just essentially a traitor. But, and uh, he caught, essentially, which is funny now, he caught a traitor, a traitor trying to betray him and offered to, quote, forgive him of what he had done already if he would repent of it and be faithful, pistis, to me hereafter. And that is in the book of Flavius Josephus, uh, 110. And so we can see here, just from these two texts, and there's one more text we want to talk about, that it's a pledging of one's political life and therefore their entire self to another. And even with Josephus, there's an issue of forgiveness and repentance, which would call for a, an entire lifestyle reorientation towards this person that he's wronged. Of course, Josephus being in political power over this person, probably, you know, disparate relationship there, but we won't get into that. But just to note that. And so in the final text, and this is the, the really interesting one, this is a great parallel between uh, Romans and Maccabees, is when Paul speaks of Abraham's faith in Romans 4, 3 to 5. He speaks of a life lived in faithfulness towards God's promise. So in 1 Maccabees, uh, you have this language of, was not Abraham found faithful when tested, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And this last phrase, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, is literally the exact same. It's a copy and paste. Uh, in, you can find the same thing in Romans 4 to 3. But Abraham believed or was faithful or something like that to God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Same sort of language here. And so what we have is uh, a comparable analogy between Paul and the Maccabean literature, where the author of Maccabees continues to describe the life of Joseph uh, in the next verse of Maccabees 2 as being one who kept the commands or commandments of God. So for early Jewish writers, including Paul, faith was something one lived into and constantly act, was constantly actively aware of. It includes kind of a cognitive awareness. In some sense, you have to be aware of what you're doing. But most of all, it's an active participation in what God has called us to. That is fidelity to God and God's promises. So in that sense, it is also hope because it's anticipating what God will do based on God's promises in history. Jewish faith then was Jewish hope in God's promises. And that's why Paul can invoke Abraham and everyone agrees with him. Abraham kept his allegiance to God despite troubling times and was recognized as righteousness. And so the evidence of the time period shows that pistis often carried the meaning of allegiance or loyalty to God and to one another. And it's not a mere awareness of, of trust or belief, but it's something far much deeper and intimate than that. And that, that's what I think a lot of the early Jewish literature shows around the time of the New Testament. And that is why we need to keep all this in mind when reading, quote, faith language and Paul specifically, but also faith language elsewhere throughout the ancient world. That's right. Um you know, so this 
you know, again, we've said it a lot, but to go back to this idea that to really understand what's meant in the New Testament, we have to understand what these words meant back in the time period and the culture in which they were written. I really love that um, that story of Josephus because we have we have this language that for those of us in the 21st century who read our Bibles is just laden with religious terminology. Uh, terminology, but Josephus says he would for, he would offer forgiveness if this traitor would repent and then be faithful. I mean, that sure sounds a lot like Jesus saying, um, you know, repent and believe the gospel. Yeah, and just this language of even Jesus talking to, you know, the woman in John's gospel. Uh, I've forgiven you, go therefore and, and live your life in a way that is where you're no longer sinning. And so there's a great way of kind of it's not just a mere belief in what jesus has done it's a life lived in recognition and participation in the call of god in your life and so it's a deeply ironically it's a deeply evangelical way of living your life if only we would kind of live into that exactly so what we're seeing and this may make some of our listeners uncomfortable is that this this concept of faith in the ancient world carried far more than just belief there was an aspect of obedience there was an aspect of works that was wrapped in with this idea of faith um, and in sort of since the reformation and in certain circles in christianity that kind of uh talk is is likely labeled heresy but as we're going to see um that that fits really well uh with the biblical text so before we end this episode uh nick i thought it would be fun i gathered um some quotes from some different writers uh different theologians throughout history about this concept of pistis or this concept of faith and so i'm just gonna i'm gonna read you um a a few quotes and after each quote i want you to see if you can guess which theologian um uh, said or wrote this particular quote, okay? I'm guessing right now they're all going to be John Piper. <laughs> uh, let's see here. All right, so here's the, uh, here's the first quote. Uh, it says, We must scrutinize and investigate the true character of faith with greater care and zeal, because many are dangerously deluded today in this respect. Indeed, most people, when they hear this term, understand nothing deeper than a common assent to the gospel history. In understanding faith, it is not merely a question of knowing that God exists, but also, and this especially, of knowing what his will is toward us. For it is not so much our concern to know who he is in himself as what he wills to be toward us. So, based on that, Nick, who do you think said that about faith? Well, I've been listening to a lot of Ligonier ministry stuff in the wake of Dr. Sproul's passing. May he rest in sleep in peace. I'm going to go with R.C. Sproul because it sounds something like something he said one time. Well, that would be a really close guess. It's probably one of uh, R.C. Sproul's greatest heroes. That comes from John Calvin uh, and his uh, institutes. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. So what Calvin I, got what something I think, right. Wow. <laughs> exactly. And that's sort of what I wanted to point out here. Yeah. Um, all right. So here's the next one. Uh, this faith is the foundation on which rests the obedience that is to be yielded to God, and it is therefore the foundation of religion. But divines generally place three parts in this obedience. The first is repentance, for it is the calling of sinners to righteousness. The second is faith in Christ and in God through Christ, for vocation is made through the gospel, which is the word of faith. And the third is the observance of God's commands, in which consists holiness of life, to which believers are called and without which no man shall see God. Who do you think said that? 
Well, I've also been going through an Oliver Crisp kick, a professor of mine at Fuller, and he's a big Jonathan Edwards guy, and so I can't decide between Spurgeon or Edwards, so I'm going to use both of them because, I mean, they're basically the same person, wink. And so I'll go with Jonathan Edwards and or uh, Spurgeon. Really, really close. That actually comes from uh, probably one of their nemeses, uh, Jacob Arminius. Oh, snap. Yes, the most hated man in all of Christian theology and the least read theologian of all of Christian history, who's also the most hated. I don't know why. Imagine that. All right, so here's the next one. Uh, the quote is, Living in submission to what God commands is the essence of faith. Living in submission to what God commands is the essence of faith. Who do you think said that? Well, he used the word submission, so I'm guessing John Piper. Close. It was your first guess. That was uh, R.C. Sproul from his little book, uh, okay. What is Faith? Uh, okay, well, I mean, you know, ballpark, ballpark. You know, I'll take a ballpark. Sounds like uh, R.C. Sproul would have made a good Armenian, huh? Yeah, I know. I mean, he was that close. You know, he's barely a Calvinist if we want to start cracking jokes about him. But, yeah, it sounds very Arminius-like. <laughs> All right, here's your next quote. It is just as impossible to separate faith and works as it is to separate heat and light from fire. That sounds like John Wesley. That's actually Martin Luther. Martin Luther from his introduction to the Romans. Ooh, actually, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I actually, that actually makes sense, yeah. Okay, fair enough, all right. I don't mind being wrong about Martin Luther. I've been wrong about Martin Luther before. All right, here's your next one. All right. In final salvation, at the last judgment, faith is confirmed by the sanctifying fruit it has borne, and we are saved th through that fruit and that faith. That actually sounds like the position of Tom Schreiner at Southern Baptist Seminary. I'm going to go with Tom Schreiner, not because I think he's the one first one to come up with it, but he's the one who's most closely associated with that language in my mind. You know what? That actually comes from John Piper from an article he wrote Dang at the it. end of I 2017. Knew, I knew John Piper was going to show up. That's so aggravating. Ah. <laughs> you were close, just not the right one. All right, here's your next quote. All right. Let it be carefully observed, for eternity depends upon it, that neither the faith of a Roman Catholic nor that of a Protestant, if it contains no more than this, no more than the embracing such and such truths, will avail any more before God than the faith of a Muslim or a heathen, yea, of a deist or a materialist. Ooh, okay, is it anyone that I've mentioned already? Yes. Okay. Crap, I should have remembered who I actually said. Uh, I'm going to go with... Uh, um, I'm going to go with Jonathan Edwards, because that sounds kind of... Oh, no. Who came, for, who came after? Edwards or Spurgeon? I'm going to go with Jonathan Edwards. Why not? That actually comes from our homeboy, John Wesley. Oh, man. Like... Ah. Ah, I need another drink. All right. Last quote. Are you ready? All right. Hit me. By this faith, a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word, for the authority of God himself speaking therein, and acts differently upon that which each particular passage thereof contains, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. I'm just going to go blanket. I'm going to say the Gospel Coalition, because they quote everybody that sounds like that. 
that's very, very close. It actually comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 14. So basically, the the, the Gospel Coalition. All right, come on, you got to give me that one. Th- that's close enough. That's close enough. It's basically right, the, the, right. the Westminster Confession is basically the Gospel Coalition of um, their time. So the, okay. the reason that I thought it was important to do this, Nick, is to really illustrate that, that this idea that there's more to faith than just mental assent, or this idea that, that faith and works are um, not mutually incompatible is not a a calvinist arminian thing uh when you when you go back luther calvin sproul wesley arminius this you you find this kind of language now there there are legitimate differences to be had and and i'm sure we're going to get into those but this idea that that faith and works go hand in hand in terms of how we're supposed to live as christians it it for, for people who actually study the scripture they know that this this is true and so this is one of those areas that we really we should be able to unite around even if we sort of disagree on maybe some of the particulars or maybe the order in which some of it works it, all all serious theologians it seems agree that faith and works do go hand in hand in the life of a christian what do you think sounds like a nice olive branch to our reformed brothers and sisters in christ which, you know, we want to do that because we will have our share of uh, disagreements with them coming up. But, but in this particular one, I think it's important to, to, to show that we really are on the same page, even if we have um, differences. Those differences are of degrees. So, uh, like we said, it, in, in this episode, we just wanted to look at uh, what pistis and fides meant within the culture in which the New Testament was written to, to, to demonstrate that these terms and these concepts were wide-ranging. We're, we're, we're dealing with more than just this idea of mental assent or this idea that, that no works are involved. So that's what we did in this episode. In our next episode, we're going to apply this information to the biblical text itself. Uh, we're going to get into some of the major passages in which faith is talked about, pistis is mentioned, and, and we're going to see if, you know, if this definition really holds up, if it makes sense of Scripture. And what I think we're going to find, Nick, is that this concept really does help to make sense of the New Testament in its entirety. Because there's no mistaking, when you read the teachings of Jesus, when you read the teachings of Paul and the other apostles, they make clear that works will be a consideration in final salvation. Uh, And understanding pistis or fides or, or faith more along the lines of loyalty or allegiance and recognizing that it's broader than just holding the proper beliefs and that it includes works uh, helps us avoid the kinds of theological gymnastics we sometimes see in certain Christian circles. Do you have anything you want to add to that? Well, it also uh, it, it shows that Christian faith is not uh, syllogistic. It's not if A, then B, and so on and so forth. It's an entire lifestyle orientated towards God and towards one another, as, as we know from Morgan's work. It's, it's about the human devotion and relationship between a, a, a husband and a wife and children and all these other disparate power dynamic relationships in the ancient world. And unfortunately, that's something that go on in the modern world as well. And so it's, it's an entire way of reconfiguring one's entire self, mind and body, towards God and towards one another in a way that pledges fidelity and, uh, and allegiance to that person as a fellow image bearer of God in a way that demands obedience to that person and to God's uh, teaching in Scripture as well. And so it's a way of kind of de... Um, de uh, what's a good word? De-the- not de-theologizing, but de... Um, oh, what's a good word? It's, 
it depropositionalizes things to the extent where you can see it lived out in your in your daily life. It's a daily living kind of pistis in a way that is not nebulous or anything like that. It, and it's not pushed into the eschaton. It's not pushed away from us. It's an ever-present reality that we live and participate in because of the glory of God found in the gift of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, that's basically all I can say to that is, is amen. Um, and I, I really think it will help us understand Scripture better as a whole and approach faith holistically uh, instead of this sort of dichotomy between between faith and works and, and the theological gymnastics that sometimes go along with that. Uh, so that's about all that we've got today, but we do want to give a shout out. Uh, this is We haven't even released our first episode yet, and we have 44 followers on Twitter. Uh, we have uh, almost 20 new uh, likes on our Facebook page. So uh, those of you who are listening to this, you have probably already connected with us there. But if you haven't, you can connect with us on Twitter. Uh, our handle there is at SynergistsPod, at SynergistsPod. Um, and if you want to like our Facebook page, it's facebook.com slash SynergistsPod. Again, that is spelled the Sinner way, S-I-N-N-E-R-G-I-S-T-S. If you have any questions or topics you'd like us to address here on the podcast, you can shoot us a message on Facebook or Twitter, or you can email us at Synergists at Outlook.com, Synergists at Outlook.com. And we want to say thank you, finally, to everyone who will be listening to this. It's been a long time coming. Thomas and I have been goofing around and finally getting serious about this for a while. So it's nice to just kind of see this begin to work out. And so we want to thank you for listening. And thank you, of course, Thomas, for doing this with me. This has just been a blast so far. And too many more sips and uh, theology nerd throwdowns in the future. Well, amen and cheers. Thanks to you, Nick, for the time to do this. And thank you to our listeners for listening to the Synergist Podcast, the most mannered you can do this. You can do this. I know you have it in you. Do it. <laughs> Come on. You can do it. I know you can do it. Oh, this is going uh, in there. You got to have it. Amen. And cheers to you, Nick. And thanks to our listeners uh, for listening to the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence. I knew you could do it, and that's how we end this.